Hey you, you're listening to Sloancast. We're your hosts slash best friends slash fellow super fans. My name is Rob. This is Ken. How you doing, buddy? Good morning. I'm doing great. I'm ready to attack this topic. All right, buddy. Yeah, we're a podcast where we discuss in depth anything and everything about the greatest band of all time. Andrew Scott, Patrick Penland, Jay Ferguson, and Chris Murphy, collectively known as Sloan. Our guest today, Ken... When, when you and I, we first started chatting about doing a deep dive Sloan tribute podcast, we had a short list of potential dream guests, and our guest today was on that list, as you know, and uh, yes. most may likely know him as the former managing editor of Chart Magazine, Aaron Browfey. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm uh, shocked that I made your short list of guests, but uh, <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Amazing, man. Yeah, Ken and I, I can speak for Ken, obviously, when I say that we both grew up with Chart Magazine, obviously a huge That's part right. of my you know, musical childhood. And I had a subscription for a while. I got one for Christmas a couple years. And um, I think it's safe to say from about the mid-90s until about the mid-2000s, I had about every issue, I think. So, you know, seeing your name in there all the time, it's awesome to talk to you now. And I think the last time I actually saw you in person, uh, I was working at a label a couple years ago. And I recall going to some sort of industry baseball game or something. <laughs> and I, I, I saw you there and then suddenly out of nowhere, not that I didn't expect it, but you were like the Babe Ruth of the team, like first pitch, <laughs> first pitch homers. Uh, so not only a brilliant mind, a writer, but a, a sportsman as well. So it is a pleasure, sir. I, I have a secret jock side that people um, are uh, when they know the, the work I do and sort of the fact that I've been sort of a culture writer, editor person for you know almost three decades uh they they, it's surprising to people yeah well on that topic of three decades if you don't mind maybe you could regale us quickly with maybe a little bit about yourself sort of like the uh, other the early days uh young aaron and how you you know maybe some early musical memories perhaps and how you got into writing uh sure uh so um i'm trying to think about how early do we start okay I'll start off uh, grade schoolish. Uh, wasn't necessarily into writing so much, but I was kind of a not smart kid. Uh, not not uh, couldn't read very well. Bad at you know the basic basics, uh, math, reading, writing, that sort of thing. Uh, one of the things that uh, my family did. Uh, was encouraged me to read, so I read a ton of comic books. Any book that I wanted, they purchased for me. Uh, it helped tremendously. Uh, so I developed a real appreciation for reading, and the comic books made me want to write comic books. And there's, you know, as a kid, I, there's I spend all my time doodling and making comic books, and uh, I really enjoyed that. So that's sort of the basis. I went from not smart to well-read over the course of a number of years, grade school. So uh, I was really into books and comic uh, uh, comic books and books and reading. And obviously a byproduct of that is, you know, you, you're kind of interested in writing too. Uh, so um, that's going on. Well, that's going on. Um, I have a hippie uncle who uh, has a great record collection. And he's feeding me records like, listen to this record, listen to this record. And I'm really digging it. My my dad had a drinking buddy who also had a great record collection. So when they'd go over there, you know, and see, you know, Friday night, the kids got nothing to do. I'd sit there and sit in front of 
you know, my father's friend's record collection and look at the album covers. It's like, and the albums were like embedded in my, my seared into my brain, like black Sabbath, Sabbath, bloody Sabbath cover. That's really cool to like an 11 year old. And especially one who's also into comic books and reading and like fantastical imagery and things. So I've got all these uh, woven interests together uh, that just sort of are embedded, embedded in me. Um, I'm from a small, small town called Penetanguishene, Ontario. Uh, ended up moving to Toronto at age 14, uh, family moved there. So went to high school there and, um, went to high school, uh, lived in Flemington park, which I don't know if you're familiar with that neighborhood, Mm -hmm. but it's one of the most, uh, multicultural neighborhoods in Canada. Uh, it's basically where if you're a new Canadian, you move there and live there uh the school i went to uh hardly any white people hardly any like traditional uh, it, i don't mean to say that in like a you know scary way uh you know old stock canadian or whatever the right. whatever the the bad version of that uh basically uh i had like a united nations of friends and influences and uh people I went to high school with, they didn't care about Led Zeppelin. They didn't care about Guns N' Roses. Right. They potentially didn't even know those bands existed. And those were like teenager, uh, small town, bush party soundtracks. And instead, I'm hanging out with people who are teaching me about acid house music. Or Hmm. uh, uh, I discovered Public Enemy and Ice-T. Or, or, you know, like... Uh, so I'm getting this incredible, just, um, like broad range musical knowledge. And at the same time in Toronto, in that period, in like, uh, early nineties, that sort of thing, uh, CFNY, the radio station was astounding. Hmm. So you could listen to, uh, I think Friday nights were, Craig Bezak's warming up the house, which was a alternative electronic industrial dance. And then Chris Shepard was, you know, alternative dance techno. And then afterwards was deadly Headley's sort of like after hours, uh, like dance hall, reggae, like dub. And, uh, so I was just, absorb i loved all of it i was absorbing mm-hmm. all of it so that's sort of that those were my musical uh like sort of foundations uh i was never a musician never never right. actually cared about being a musician the idea of being a music media person is you know that you're a failed musician <laughs> that doesn't apply to me at all what i cared about was books and magazines so right. uh after high school I went to journalism, uh, went into journalism because there was a practical application of writing. Uh, I, you know, I hustled a lot and, uh, you know, I was, by the time I had graduated, I was already contributing regularly to a number of different publications. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was working as a uh, education reporter, uh, covering the East York school board, um, uh, being an education reporter, 
is uh, it's kind of depressing because <laughs> there are always people trying to um, uh, they don't care about the students. Uh, sometimes right. there are forces that are always up against educators doing the best and having the best opportunities. Right. So uh, while I was doing that, I took a free internship at Chart Magazine. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing all this serious, you know, community reporting, you know, all this stuff. And I'm doing a free internship on the side, you know, just grinding. And then, well, that was during like the height of the Edgefest uh, days. I think it would have been Edgefest 97 period. Okay. So at Chart Magazine, everybody had gone, everybody in the office went on the road to cover all of Edgefest. So it was just completely abandoned except for like me, an ad guy, a couple of the publishers, you know, so I was sort of the only person in the office at a certain right. point. Right. The two editors came back off the road, completely exhausted, completely just like, Oh, we worked like 20 hour days. It's a huge grind. We did all this, that we're quitting. Okay. So they quit and I was the only one who had any experience in the, in the office, uh, on the editorial side. So I got hired and I was like, I'd much rather be writing about bands and music and putting out a cool magazine than I, uh, going over budgets, uh, and finding out, you know, like, Hey, they're cutting the budgets for librarians and, and, or they're cutting all the budgets for cleaning staff or, you know, that sort of thing. So that's what got me, uh, that's my origin story of what got me to chart magazine and to writing about music and editing music and being sort of a music media person. How, How many, how many people were employed at chart at this point in time? So approximately, I think at our peak, we were probably at 10 full-time staff. And okay. uh, we had a, a just a massive network of contributors right. across across Canada and some international. Uh, I bet you our active roster at some point was probably 60, 70 people. Like, okay. Uh, I, okay. It was, it was a uh, pretty massive uh, collection of writers in in pretty much every major city in Canada and almost, you know, we had like genre representation in in a lot of these places. So like we would have a hip hop person in Winnipeg and a metal person in Winnipeg and a, you know, just a indie person in Winnipeg sort of thing. So it wasn't just like a staff of three. So right, because the publication, from my recollection, at that point in time was massive. I mean, it was in music stores pretty much everywhere. It was it was on it was on magazine stands. Um, I recall, and we talked about this, Robin, in an earlier episode when when the uh, Navy Blues album came out in April of '98. They there was a sort of a special chart stand for the magazine issues with the four faces of the four members of the band Mm -hmm. that was at towards the side of you know so there was the whole merchandise set up based on chart magazine yeah so in my my teenage perception at that point in time this magazine was just huge right (laughs) uh well i i mean we weren't huge but we did okay we were certainly punching way above our weight uh uh it's funny because our publisher 
would consider uh, Exclaim probably one of their top or top competition, even though they were a free newsprint publication. But, you know, I knew most of those writers. I knew most of their editors, you know, our level were, we're friendly, but he's looking at it as like, well, they might get an ad or a promotion or an event that we don't get. So we hate them, but that didn't matter. (laughs) Um, But I viewed our competition as, uh, the people that were on the newsstand. So we had to right, go against sure. Q and Rolling Stone and enemy yeah, sure. and, uh, AP alter- alternative press. And, uh, because if you went into a bookstore and you went to the magazine rack, there would be all these giant international magazines and there'd be us. And we right. have to come up with, you know, what can we put in our magazine that's going to make someone uh, part with their $5 for us instead right. of the $5 for uh, Rolling Stone. Okay. Including, including who you have on your cover, which is, you know, the bridge to our topic of the day or to our topic of this podcast. When was the first time that you as privately, but also as a, as a, as a music journalist came into contact with the band Sloan? Um, so as a music fan, I would have known. I, I I knew about the band right from the Peppermint EP. Okay. Uh, I, I I can't figure out whether it was my brother or myself uh, who who bought it. But at the time, like what year was that? Like eighty nine, ninety, or something? That Peppermint was ninety one, ninety two. Okay, that was when it would have been rolling out in Ontario. So so that's when uh, the. Uh, the Sam, the record man at young street in uh, downtown Toronto had a massive indie uh, wall of just indie Canadian musicians. And this was the start, the, the real start of, of independent, like uh, the first wave of independent music. And like, you know, the, probably the biggest success from that was bare naked ladies, but Sloan weren't far from sure. far behind in that sort of uh, uh, discovery world so uh, i was on it pretty you know right from the outset um uh, as professionally you know i wouldn't have have wouldn't have had any interactions with the band until i uh started working at the magazine so i interned started interning in 97 98 would have been the first time i was actually allowed to talk to people right (laughs) so it would have been sort of ongoing occasionally from then on out and what kind of a standing did the band have at chart magazine because we as fans sort of have this perception of the band being having this sort of residency almost at chart magazine there's you know chart uh, chart being one of the biggest proponents of the band over their career and probably vice versa as well so how was how did that dynamic work out well uh, i think the best way to explain it is that uh a Music magazines in general uh, define themselves by what they are and what they aren't, you know, mm-hmm. you know quite often. Uh, and we essentially picked Sloan as the thing that 
sort of defined us, you know, indie spirit, uh, you know, broad range of influences, uh, you know, we as a publication love the band and, uh, you'll find a lot of music magazines or publications or websites to this day sort of have a vision and sometimes they change or shift over, over time, but Mm. they were sort of, they were one of our pillars, one of our anchors. But that's really what they were like. They were, well, Our Lady Peace were probably one of the other anchors. And because they were by far the most uh, commercially uh, successful for us, it wasn't particularly close, you know. Uh, Right. uh, So if it came down, if Our Lady Peace and Sloan had an album coming out in the same month and they wanted to be on the cover, Right, probably would have had to pick Our Lady Peace so that we could feed ourselves. Okay, that's an interesting. I I think they did have an album coming out at the same time in '99, right? I think Between the Bridges was released. We talked about this Rob earlier. I think Between the Bridges was pretty much done within the same, maybe within the same month or two of of Our Lady Peace. Yeah, I can't recall. Yeah, well, we're starting an Our Lady Peace podcast next month, so we'll have to have you back. Any early memories of seeing them live, perhaps? I mean, obviously, you're living in Toronto. I mean, they're there right away in 92. One of my... It's funny, because uh, I, I thought you you might uh, ask me this question, so I looked through my concert diary, and uh, I, I'm mad at myself, because I don't have the date written down, but one of... Uh, but I, I uh, know we covered it in the magazine. So it's in actually the pages of the magazine somewhere along the lines. But Sloan did a rooftop show at CFNY uh, in downtown Toronto, where um, if you're not familiar with Old Young Street, so I'm going to randomly say this was 2000 because I don't remember the date. The band is playing on a balcony that's like five it's not actually at the roof it's like a balcony like five stories up or so Mm -hmm. and it's just chris murphy kind of hanging over this balcony and it's (laughs) that's my only distinct memory of that show I, i i don't have any other like I don't remember what the set list was. I don't remember. Right. We can anything we else. can edit all of that yeah. afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that would probably be my uh, most notable early Sloan show. Balcony concert. So it's, it sounds like a bit of a, a nod to um, both the um, famous "Let It Be" uh, sessions of the Beatles and the Michael Jackson baby incident. Uh, I'm not sure <laughs> if that was a conscious decision or not. It might have predated the Michael Jackson baby incident by a few years. Uh, trend-setting, trend-setting band, definitely. Uh, it, I, I think your timeline is right on that, but uh, <laughs> I, I choose to believe now that you said that that it was a combo of beatles tribute slash michael jackson tribute because in my head that's the way it's kind of felt okay uh, now that it's out in the open yeah there we go 
the um, that era of of Sloan fandom, ninety five through ninety eight. I mean, that's really kind of the point in time in which, and you you talked about this, in which the band were sort of the poster boys of the indie music scene in general. And we did an episode on the release of Navy Blues in ninety eight, and sort of the momentum coming behind that. This was famously covered in Chart magazine at this point in time. I know, I know that the band ha- had already been on the cover of Chart for the One Chord to Another era, and were just driving forward with their um, with their presence in, in, in music media in '98. And this culminated in a release of Chart magazine in which each of the four band members had a separate cover with their face on it. Could you maybe talk about the that issue in particular and about the circumstances surrounding that that issue? Uh, sh- sure. So what we did, I, I'm actually going to grab one of the copies so I can have it for reference. Which guy do you uh, have? I only, yeah, there I, only have, there I only have. You two picked the right the one. Uh, <laughs> Listeners uh, can guess some, who we're holding up. <laughs> yeah, for for some reason, I don't have. Uh, uh, all four in my personal archive, which I'm a little stung about because at this point there's pretty much zero chance I will ever encounter uh, the other two um, anywhere else ever again. But yeah, so, you know, it's funny because I hated when comic books did multiple covers, but when we had the idea to... do four covers. I loved it because a, they looked great. Uh, and, uh, we were always in a fight with bands because we knew that having one person on the cover, uh, uh, is way more effective. It looks better. It's more striking. It's more uh, issues are more popular. So, you know, you always want one person as opposed to like, I don't know, put six people on the cover from, I don't know how many people are in like, uh, no, I stopped myself. I was going to name a band, a random band and say something nasty about them. <laughs> trying to be positive. But uh, so, it's okay. uh, but how do you do that with Sloan? You know, some people go, well, it's got to be Chris. Well, Patrick has the bigger hits. But, but what about Jay? But what about Andrew? So we, we just went let's make four different versions with four different covers and uh, a little uh, inside juice about that. We had an agreement with, with the band. Uh, I don't know all the details because it was our publisher that worked it out uh, at, mm-hmm. at sort of a uh, higher than my pay grade level. But right. I believe the official deal was that uh, when two of the four sold out, we would shred the other, uh, the rest of the of uh, the copies, so that the other two would never know. Um, wow! And makes a lot of sense if you're thinking about sort of team unity, I guess. Sure. Uh, but yeah. it never reached that point because the magazine went under before uh, they uh, we reached the point of uh, selling out. So. 
they just whatever was left ended up disappearing someday one day that's amazing because chris makes the joke on the 98 i and i on much music he makes the joke that there's some sort of agreement that where if one sells out then the rest get shredded or whatever because they don't want to have like you know still available chris murphy you know (laughs) in the back of the magazine or something that's good that's amazing that's actually pretty smart foresight on on their part to sort of uh to plan that out so I don't know, actually know which was the most popular. Uh, those those numbers have long since receded in my mind, and and you know whatever like specific information like that has long since turned to dust. So I'm just gonna say J. There it yeah, is. We figured it was J. There it is. And uh, so at, the, at, the, at around this point in time, you're really establishing your internet presence as a magazine as well with chartattack.com. And that was, you know, a format in which you were able to update things a lot more regularly. And I recall there being a photo of the week feature that was very popular at that point in time on, on, on banned websites. And, you know, if you got featured, if your photo got featured as photo of the week for Chart Magazine, if you were a fan or something, it was this really big deal. Could you maybe speak to that evolving format in in music media and how Sloan played into that constellation? Because I know that they they were just as present on chartattack.com as they were in the in, in the actual paper magazine itself. Sure. Uh so we were really, really um early out of the gate uh with an online presence. And when I say we were punching above our weight, like we were we were truly competing against, you know, uh, I don't know, Viacom owned, you know, super sites sort of thing with like three people in an office and one dedicated right. online editor. Uh, but we had figured out really, really early on that uh, the internet was where things were going. We also figured yeah. out early on that the magazine was as a physical product was uh probably not going to to last and uh that we'd have to switch over to being Mm. an online only thing like we saw all this coming well in advance and and really tried uh as best we could to sort of stay solvent say stay relevant from a just keep the lights on perspective well still trying to do cool and interesting things and serve all our audience and audiences and readers and, and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, with chart attack, uh, the website, we did daily news. We did, uh, concert reviews. We did photo galleries. We didn't, uh, we kind of shut it down right around the time when we were, we we had visions for what the next generation, what the next phase was going to be. And, you know, mm. uh, we had uh, plans where, like, we were going to have a studio, like, which is basically what tiny desk concerts are and you right. know, so many other right. people. Like, we had all the same visions that all these other people had. It just, we didn't have... Uh, gigantic like multimedia capital behind us and yeah we couldn't we couldn't pull it off and we couldn't compete with like truly truly gigantic organizations 
Right. I mean, and, and as soon as you do open it up to the internet, you're no longer just competing with Exclaim or another you know, no. paper in, in Toronto, but you're, you're competing with Billboard or whoever, right? NPR, yeah. as you mentioned. But, you know, we were, every day we'd have a scoop because we would, uh, at a certain point, just the sheer volume of assignments we were doing, uh, because we were trying to not just be, you know, the indie rock alternative magazine, which was still our core. It was always our core. Uh, we chart was a, got its name chart because it was originally just campus radio charts. And then it became campus radio charts with a couple stories. By the time I joined the organization, it was a full fledged color magazine. that was trying that also had some charts in it, but w- within all those charts, like, we had we had interest in all kinds of musics and we were trying to serve so much of those and so like i know wu-tang clans in town so you got to get an interview with one of them uh you know uh, slayers in town got to get an interview with one of them and so many of our writers were young and like this might have been their first job or you know second job but uh, a good portion of them got sharpened there's we weren't muckrakers but we're pretty sharp at figuring out if someone says something outlandish in an interview package that up nicely and you put that on the internet and suddenly it's a story that travels around the world so here's you know 22 year old reporter who's a second year journalism student at ryerson who just got sent to go interview, I don't know, Oasis, because it's their favorite band, and they're the only person that we could find that could do it at 2 in the afternoon on uh, Wednesday when we got the interview slot. And then Oasis says all kinds of outlandish things to them, and then they immediately come to the office, type it up, put it on the internet, and it's there, and it's out into the world in two or three hours. And, uh, you know... It would just try. It'd be a game to watch who would steal the quotes and who'd like, you know, credit us and who wouldn't credit us. And we were right in that mix of uh, newsbreakers and 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 people like breaking music related stories and and making creating interests. Hmm. Well, that's what I loved about the website, that and, and, and the print as well, the magazine itself. Like, um, <clears throat> from my memory, like it, it felt like, and I was a Rolling Stone guy too growing up. I mean, I think that probably in chart were my two main magazines. And where Rolling Stone, thinking back about it now, felt very corporate. Like there was lots of ads and, you know, it was very. I would say very like us centric, perhaps maybe more than anything. Mm-hmm. Whereas chart, like you were talking about with the different genres and stuff, like you, like you said, there'd be like some, inter- some interview with a Wu-Tang guy on one page and then you turn the page and it's like, you know, an, uh, an ad for chore, the band chore from, you know, like from Hamilton or something, or, uh, you know, and then the next page is Sloan and the next page is Foo Fighters. And it just felt like all of those, it was neat seeing all of those bands in one place. And it kind of, I know Chris has talked about this too, about much music where you would have, you know, local Canadian or, you know, Canadian bands, Canadian artists who are potentially independent on the same show as these huge international superstars. And for us as viewers and readers, they just felt like they were on the same playing field. Um, so a really awesome platform. Yeah. It's, it's, 
it, it's funny. It's a remarkable. Our, our way of viewing things was remarkably similar to what you just described about, you know, the much music playlists. Uh, basically the way it would work for the magazine specifically is any act that was halfway remote, like popular, successful, uh, relevant to, to our universe, we'd get pitched for the, to have them on the cover. You know, we can, and it would almost be like, well, we only do 10 covers a year, you know, and those are going to the, the 10 most popular acts. If you're not, if you, you can, you can look at the release schedule and figure out whether you're one of our 10 most popular acts. It's not very difficult, but beneath that. So there's a, a whole separate ecosystem inside the magazine where, um, we could do, a one-page story on, say, Oasis, and a one-page story on, I don't know, local rabbits, and put them back to back. Nice. And uh, local rabbits, uh, although I think they have, they did get on uh, a cover or two, maybe before mm-hmm. I worked. But local rabbits in our more popular uh, expanded universe days would not get on the cover of the magazine, but in the guts in the inside, we would try to make them sound and look as important as Oasis. Right. And, and that's what we would do. Uh, you know, and, and we do that across genres, you know, like, uh, well, always trying to make sure that, you know, you got to serve your, your core audience. But if we liked a Cardinal, uh, record, mm. we we're going to make sure that story got in there, even though we're officially a rock magazine. We we're trying to get that that stuff in there. So yeah, and I recall just bands being presented to me at that point in time that I'd never really heard of because they weren't popping up on much music. You know, I think that, and you've been on the Danko Jones podcast and you're obviously close to danko himself having having um contributed to it to his his own book that that came out a couple of years ago but i recall reading about danko jones before i ever saw or heard danko jones in in on on radio or much music or anything that must have been around 90 thinking 97 98 um you know so the the magazine itself and that diversity of of uh, editorial topics that you're talking about really contributed i think as well to the spotlight on so many bands that we've come to know later on right i guess uh part of that is was built into sort of our genes right right because we were a campus radio leaning organization that we're always uh always finely tuned to whatever the newest freshest like weirdest uh most popular thing in a given town or city or given radio station where we're like why is this act we've never heard of number one in winnipeg we've got to listen to this you know why are they why is this new act we've never heard of number one in uh, the station in, uh, I don't know, Trois Riviere, you know, mm-hmm. so we were always chasing the sort of the new sound that way. 
Uh, so it was just a function of how we were set up almost like, because we saw all these charts from around, around the country, we'd, we'd see someone new or hear about something new and try to chase, chase that down. And if we liked it, we sort of tried to do our part to magnify it. And right. it was just, it was, it was just a real a, a cycle of what we, how we did it. Right. Before we move on to the real elephant in the room, which is, I think, the question that we've all been waiting to ask you for this uh, for, for, for this past hour or so, um, I want to kind of touch on your role at Chart Magazine in publishing music as well in many ways. Uh, you know, you had the Chart Club, which was the inner circle of subscribers. And after a certain point in time, and I think this must have been around 98, uh, there was the Chart Club CD, which was delivered to subscribers as well. And I recall... And it might have even been the first ever Chart Club CD in was a release by Sloan. Maybe you could talk to that. Okay, so uh, Work Cut Out is a song that was first released as a, I guess, a, a bonus CD that came with issues of Chart Magazine. Uh, it was a pretty big deal for us because all the British magazines at that time we're always doing full CDs or cassettes or, or what have you. And we just couldn't get anything. And then, uh, Sloan agreed to do this and agreed to like, give us a song. And, uh, it was amazing. It, the song, it's not in my top five of Sloanography, Sloan songographies. <laughs> I um, love it. I love um, it. But uh, the the act of having it was pretty amazing because uh, I loved the fact that we could say that we had this. And it's funny because whenever uh, we'd go on location anywhere, say there is a giant concert festival, so we'd have a booth, then we'd sell back issues. Uh, I'm a horrible salesperson, but I would just sit there and any teenagers that came up were like, buy this one. It's got a free Sloan CD in it. Yeah. So I was personally peddling those. I can't remember which issue it was in, but that specific issue, I was just peddling endlessly. But that wasn't the first uh, Sloan giveaway in Chart Magazine. Uh, there okay. was actually, predating that, was actually a uh, flexi 7-inch single of... Right. Um, from twice removed it was um, coax me? Was, was me and i think it was like a radio edit or a, a something i can't remember the actual um I ixnay on the stevie yeah 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 <laughs> with yeah, uh, one that, professional pair as the b-side yeah i i should right. i should have pulled it out for this but uh yeah i think that was on an issue that had rusty on the cover i think that's the one and it would have mm -hmm. so that would have been 95 96 ish that's a impossible issue to find and also if you saw any issues on ebay you might cast a leery eye on them because i think not me but i think there were staffers who pulled uh, copies out of those issues and would sell them on ebay but that was the understood the collector's value early. Yeah, but there is there's a uh, four or five different uh, flexies 
that uh, we did over the years. Uh, there was Sloan, there was Limb Lifter, there was uh, one with four separate acts on it that I can't remember. Uh, these all mm-hmm. predated me, so I just, you know, I have one copy of each, and I don't know much about, you know, the story of how they came to be, or I was just, ha- oh, there's a Zucker Baby one. Uh, I was just happy that mm. uh, I got some. And with all, with all these bands and stuff, I mean, you, we were talking earlier about just the the exposure for different genres and stuff. And for me, I used to keep a list in my bag of like records I wanted to, f- to look for, and I would always use the back of chart, the 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 reviews and the rating system, which I, as I recall, were like little C's, you mm-hmm. know. And I don't recall; I can't remember if it was at a four out of five. Um, so I wanted to quickly ask about that as a preamble to get into the top 50 lists. Um, I was, I was always curious about how it was organized. Like if there was a writer to a specific genre who was just hyping up bands, you know, they're giving them a perfect score or if there had to be some sort of control there, you know? Uh, and then that kind of leads into the question about the top 50 lists, which of course occurred in, uh, 1996, 2000 and 2005, uh, where Sloan is at the top in 96 and 2005 with Toys Removed. Uh, and obviously you were there in 97, so that's probably why they were cranked down to number three uh, in 2000 behind Joni Mitchell and Neil Young. So yeah, I don't know if you, if you have a moment to talk about sort of the reviews and how the start, like the rating system worked, and then maybe just a bit about the uh, the top 50 list. Sure. Uh, so we used to run a substantial amount of record reviews, uh, you know, in a particularly uh, big issue we might do 60 uh and it ended up that that's a that's a outlandish amount by the way um so it was quite often less than that but you know if uh the ad sales are good and you know it's like oh you've got you need to fill 20 pages of content well there's going to be 20 pages of record reviews um the Five out of five system was mostly uh, we we sort of side with the writers in almost every instance. Um, you know, we had a pretty good handle on if you're an expert in pop punk uh, and you think this Blink 182 record is the best. Well, I might hate pop punk and I might hate Blink 182, but uh you are the person who knows and are going to you know if you're the writer who goes to all the warp tours uh and and knows that crowd that audience that record you know we'd put our trust in them uh there'd occasionally be times when i don't know someone writes a five out of five review but gives it a three out of five and it's like whoa why'd you do that well it's because i gave it a five out of five last week or last month and i can't do too many um i think i gave like maybe a half dozen five out of fives my whole time working there the people that gave too many uh we'd actually give them a little bit of talking to it's like do you actually love everything everything is a five out of five to you. Like, like most records that are competent, like technically competent, musically competent, idea, competent, art, competent, concept, competent. Mm -hmm. When you listen to hundreds and hundreds of them constantly, 
most records are about 3.5 out of 5. Like, you have to be mm-hmm. exceptional in any any genre, any field to, to rise, ab- rise above. And people are so offended when they figure out there are, there are 3.5 out of 5. I'm like, 3.5 out of 5 is great. It means you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's just you haven't come up with your perfect record yet or you're or you may think you've created a perfect record but i i listened to uh, i don't know you may think you've made the the best trip hop record ever but we got sent right. 30 trip hop records last month and <laughs> you're right in the middle of those sort of things so people don't see that part um but yeah that's record reviews there are there were not infrequent occasions when uh, I'd listen to a record, usually novelty records or just absolutely bizarre, like experimental records or just mm. uh, things that were quite outlandish where I pick a specific writer that I, that might be confounded or like just exasperated by the record and go, mm. you can only give this a one or a five. And I, I, I would do that frequently, but it's like you have to listen to it and commit to it and come up with an opinion. Right. This is great or it's terrible, right. but pick a lane and stick to it. <laughs> That's amazing. And speaking of exceptional, obviously the band themselves landed, like I said, in the top spot, uh, top 50 albums of all time in both 96 and 2005. If you don't mind speaking to that a little bit, how that sort of consensus is made amongst the writers in terms of yeah. the list in total. Sure. So, uh, so chart magazine did on three separate occasions, a, uh, poll of musicians, writers, industry insiders basically the industry and an artist uh and asking what are the favorite canadian records of all time this is pretty mostly pre-internet so this was calling up people on the phone you know write in you know uh, early email kind of stuff there was no easy yeah. database you know uh you know google sheets crunching of of stuff so it was pretty intensive and it was absolutely massive outreach uh uh programs so the first one in 90s was it 96 yeah 96 um mm-hmm. I didn't have any part of that that was that predated me, but Sloan won that one uh, with Twice Removed, uh, which makes a lot of sense considering, you know, they were sort of our foundational, one of our foundational bands. And then uh, sure. we redid it in 2000, and that, that was the first one that I was in charge of. Uh, and so... I was right there, you know, soliciting calls and, 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 uh, you know, uh, from Joni Mitchell's lawyer, probably. Uh, <laughs> you know, people jockeying, you know, there's definitely jockeying and, uh, yeah. uh, you know, like just, just trying to get, uh, the ballots, you know, the more voters, the better. And then, uh, yeah. who won that one? 
the second That was one. Joni Mitchell in number one uh, with Neil Young Harvest number two. Sorry, gentlemen, Joni Mitchell Blue at uh, number one, Neil Young Harvest number two, Sloan three. Rio yeah. Statics Whale Music was four, um, which was previously mm-hmm. five in the 96. Yeah. And then um, Rio Statics again. Uh, double Rio Statics. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Back to back. That, uh, how redacted was that poll? Like, I mean, how, how much, how well does this reflect the raw results that you've been receiving and how, how did you tweak those results? Um, the results, at least the, the years that I was responsible, that's pretty, pretty close to what reflecting what, what we got, you know, there wasn't much in the way of Trixies or, you know, like, you know, manipulating the, the numbers, um, didn't need a recount on that one, right? <laughs> yeah, there's none of that. Uh, I wish I had the tools of the now to that I could have applied back then. I, I think uh, there probably would have been a far different uh, picture. And you know, you know, I, I look at that list now and I see holes and incompletes and uh, and things where uh, voter segments got missed you know, just by the absence of certain records. And so I, right. I see a list of uh, uniformly wonderful records that if you like music and if you like Canadian music, you should like a substantial amount of them. But it, I don't feel it's definitive uh, in hindsight. Gotcha. Makes sense. And was, was the method in 2005 where, so a Sloan returns to the podium, yeah. to the top of the podium in 2005 with twice removed. Was there a change in the methodology between 2000 and 2005? Uh, well, by 2005, we would have been at least rudimentary internet-y. Uh, so I imagine there would have been a lot more ballots and a lot, uh, a lot more efficiently um, gathered. So that would be a big factor by 2005. So a better cross-section. And there's definitely a huge, I'm looking at it now, there are definitely huge changes. Like you can see the impact of, uh, we'll call it like the the indie rock, you know, even though Hmm. the chart universe was, quote, indie, it was not indie rock in the pitchfork, you know, like marketing term yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was indie as in uh, you uh, are associated with a one of the eight major record labels at the time. Uh, but uh, then indie became a specific sound and sort of dress code and, uh, right. and was also exceptionally popular. Uh, at that time and that is very very reflected in in uh the last time that we did it like you know i think there's an arcade there, you know death from above's in here mm. yeah broken social scene weaker than's are right at the top in 2005 yeah yeah arcade fire at 17 uh you know there's uh you, you you can see a change in our audience, in our polling, in in our in sort of uh, how trends uh, affect sort of a 
because we did those essentially every five years. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, you can see how uh, there's a huge turnover just based on, you know, someone who heard, listened to that arcade fire record and maybe they're a young writer, but they're on staff, they get a vote and they feel that record more deeply than, uh, I don't know, Neil Young's tonight's the night, which they wouldn't give a shit about right. at all. It's like they're voting <laughs> for arcade fire and they're not voting for an old Neil Young record. Hmm. Uh, so yeah. you can see that. It's interesting to see the top three, though. They're the same as from 96. And it's interesting that in 2005, Sloan is still at the top. I mean, obviously, I think well-deserved. The album's awesome. But we're two years away from, uh, you know, the rest of my life being a pretty big hit. In 2005, they had the Greatest Hits album, the A-Sides Win album, come out. And they're a year away still from sort of the, I mean, we've kind of, perhaps referred to never hear the end of it as kind of polarizing. It's, it's a long 30, 30 song album. And I think even the guys in the band kind of talk about that album being like a benchmark for them. Like, you know, mm-hmm. fans pre 2006 fans post 2006. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to see them at the top there in 2005 in this sort of year where other than the best of album, there's really, they haven't really, they've yeah. been touring and stuff, but it's not like they've had some sort of notable action. Um, yeah. I, I wish sort of my, um, polling methodology sort of insight were better at this point. My guess is they just benefited from winning or from being the top three in the previous years or the previous version. Right. So they were top of mind for some people and top of mind for an audience that if we asked you in 2000, you probably still felt the, and you had been kicking around in the industry for five years, or you're a band that we talked to in 2000 and we talked to you again in 2005, you probably held similar views. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there'd be obviously a turnover and new blood that would account for new uh, new albums being considered and added or but if you know um Joni Mitchell's Blue was your favorite album for 30 years and we talked to someone who's voted the th- all three times that vote wasn't mm-hmm. going to change Right. Yeah, th- those right. number one votes aren't exactly going to change like you say. Yeah. And it's yeah. neat to hear that it was I mean, I don't recall at the time knowing that it was such an industry-wide poll, you know, to hear that it was also artists and stuff is really neat. Yeah. We basically tried to we would have asked everybody that we could in our universe with the time and means that we had. Say, so, you know, uh right now I could set up a poll on any any social media platform and get if it's the right question, get strangers, friends, thousands, hundreds, yeah. thousands of people in, instantly and relatively effortlessly. But it wasn't the case, you know, back then. And speaking of it being informed by different musicians and stuff, I know uh, we I spoke about it at the beginning of the podcast, like an industry baseball game and stuff. You'd mentioned, uh, and I don't know if it was, uh, you know, I, I knew around the time of certain festivals like North by Northeast and stuff, they'll have industry sports and stuff. And you'd mentioned playing hockey with the guys before. I know Andrew and Chris specifically, um, 
uh, are hockey guys. And I recall hearing about Andrew kind of like on tour soliciting for rinks to play at and stuff. And so you've, you've actually played mm-hmm. with, you've actually played the guys uh, on yeah. the rink before. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I have uh, part of my secret jock past is also uh, a, a, a jock present. There is a vibrant uh, arts hockey scene in and around Toronto. Uh, a number of teams, a number of like strong identity teams. Uh, there's two two leagues, uh, multiple different you know weekday skates. Um, of various levels there's also a national tournament that takes place each year at, over mm-hmm. easter where there's about 40 teams usually around 40 teams where uh you you know it's teams from around the country and the rule is you, you come to play hockey but uh, you have to uh do a band or do some art thing because you we take over uh the horseshoe tavern or a similar club uh, that that right. night, and uh, there's like eight divisions in in the in the hockey tournament. So like one in every three teams wins a trophy. That doesn't matter. Uh, the big trophy is these hockey teams who want to be the best band. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. where the real competition is, and people scheme and uh, spend the whole calendar year uh, coming up with their 20 minute stage stage things where you got a bunch of beer league hockey players that have to put on a musical performance. <laughs> uh, it just so happens that uh, the team that, that I'm on, uh, we're pretty good uh, at this sort of thing. We've won the, the main trophy three times, uh, but I think nice. uh, Chris has won it. Uh, Chris is the various teams that he's been on have, I think won it three times as well. Maybe maybe he, Mm -hmm. he'd have to fact check that. Um, Andrew's pretty serious. So the teams that he plays on, uh, are never good artistically. They're no fun. So, uh, uh, he doesn't care. Yeah. Yeah. So they never win the, the art uh, awards. They, they always do pretty well on the hockey side. Uh, but again, like I said, who cares about having a one in four chance of winning like a hockey trophy? You know, you got to go for the one in 40 special one. Uh, We, there was no tournament last this year for obvious like reasons, but we won last year by uh, doing uh, a send up of the hilarious house of uh, Frightenstein. We, we (laughs) basically did, imitated an episode of Frightenstein with a bunch of like 60s, 70s garage rock uh, songs and had everybody in costume and in makeup would probably spent like 4,000. No, (laughs) it's probably over a thousand bucks. And, uh, and if you added labor in, in there that we got for free, (laughs) we probably put a thousand hours of, of effort into it. It was, Fantastic. it was way too much. 
maybe not a thousand, but 500 hours of effort for sure. So how would you judge these guys on the ice? I'm speaking about Chris and Andrew specifically. I mean, like they're obviously going to top a list, you know, in a magazine, you know, um, best album, but uh, in terms of players, uh, I know I'm curious on the ice. So Andrew, <laughs> Andrew is not uh, elite, but he's in, but he's, he's pretty good. He could, he could, uh, hmm. he could play in a, uh, NH a game against NHLers, and uh, even though those those charity games between NHLers and non NHLers are always mm. those the NHLers are always only going at about fifteen percent, um, mm. he could play against them and not look embarrassing and look like a real hockey player. Right. Right. Um, Chris would be the guy that in the charity game where Paul Coffey would accidentally on purpose trip him and then take <laughs> his gloves away from him and then, you know, like just embarrass him on the ice. Chris is more Paul of a, uh, thing to do. he just wants to be at the, be part of the, be part of the thing that's happening. Right. Right. All right. So that's a good, solid reflection, I think, of expectations in the sense that Chris always kind of under, downplays his interest in sports. And Andrew is, you know, humbly a provincial cross country champion and basketball prospect that turned drummer and artist. So Chris likes the nonsense in and around this tournament specifically. <laughs> like he's he's an alpha nonsense person. You know, him and uh, Kevin Hilliard, who I'm sure you're both familiar with, I think they treat it as a personal goal to create chaos uh, in this thing. And, uh, and they do it in in, in the sorts of ways like um, uh, the tournament has a mascot competition where teams frequently have mascots. It's a, a way to get people who aren't hockey players to participate, but they'll like, Every team ends up having this giant mascot. One year we intend to have like a Gwar type mascot and enter into this <laughs> thing and just like ruin it because it's like, you know, oh, bring your kids to, for the mascot skate. You know, it'll be really funny. <laughs> so just our team is going to have an odorous, erungus, you know, replica <laughs> with a giant penis shooting, like, I don't know snowed ice chips that people i don't know <laughs> this but, must uh, be where the i remember there being i think it was mike nelson played Murchie, and he was like the mascot who's just a big t-shirt is that he, correct he uh, does it almost every year Murchie <laughs> right. is a foundational character uh i i don't know if mike has actually ever played a game uh i don't know if he participates in the ice if he does he to the best of my knowledge invisible as a player but as Murchie, he is beloved and uh a highlight of the whole weekend because he basically walks around in this giant it's basically a giant <laughs> shirt where he's like this all you see is his face and his hands sticking out just waving at people and uh <laughs> There's a team called the Blackhearts, so they have a mascot called Hardy, a giant heart. So Murchie and Hardy are always getting up to antics. It's uh, they over the years 
they've created their own uh, their own stories, their own timelines, their own storylines. It's uh, it's fascinating. We'll have to get a photo of Merchie up on uh, social media when this uh, episode comes out for sure. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're around for sure. It's a very well, uh, you know, when you have forty teams made up of art people, they also all know how. They, you know, every team has a photographer on it. Every team has a videographer right. on it. You know, every <laughs> team's got a writer. And so, so being a writer yourself and, you know, having, I mean, conservatively, I don't know how many re- records you've listened to over the years. It must be in the thousands of varying genres and stuff. Um, as a professional listener, shall we say, when it comes to the topic of Sloan, do you happen, do you have a favorite Sloan song or an album or anything like that? It's, it's funny because I also, I, I thought this question was coming. So I did give it a... <laughs> I was listening earlier today, re-listening to everything. I'm going to have to go with the, the song that brought me to the game, and uh, that's Underwhelmed. Mm. Uh, I, I mm-hmm. listened to it again, and I think it's smartass and coy, but I also think it's incredibly sharp and uniquely sharp. Like There isn't a lot of like sly, sharp like witty savvy like songs or music that just match that right and with the aneurysm drum fill to boot right <laughs> i mean you're getting you're getting wittiness and 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 coyness on top of grunge yeah well and it's it's funny because i don't think any of us consider them a grunge band or remotely a grunge grunge band like when i listen to the early records all i hear is you know uh my bloody valentine and you know creation records you know kind of kind of things even though i know they were kind of put into that sort of alternate grunge revolution sort of box that would have been, I guess, the marketers and and people trying to trying to it help the them time, sell right? them. Yeah. Which fine, you know, just I'm sure as long as people heard them, it all works out, right? But uh, yeah, I I don't I don't even hear grunge quote grunge in in them at all. I also now know pretty much you know a lot of their music influences and a lot of the records that they listen to and the things they like. And I also know like they weren't sitting there going, fuck, we got to come up with something that's going to top 10. And, you know, we got out Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam. I know that conversation <laughs> did not happen. Well, it might've happened, but uh, I sure, but whoever brought it up would have, you know, been kicked out of the, the studio sort of thing. That's right. We're all, we're all hoping for the, um, smeared box set reissue hopefully in the next couple of years so we can hear all of those lovely uh demo takes of the various tracks that that we get on the album and of course this is a nice uh call out to listeners if you're listening to this watch out for the b-sides win compilation which is coming out as we speak on vinyl and there's a great version of underwhelmed on that compilation from the here and now uh compilation from from halifax in in and around 92 so if you're a fan of of underwhelmed as aaron is then you want to pick up that record if there are still copies available when you're listening to this which there probably won't be um but yeah that's i mean that that for that's a song that hooked 
so many fans of that first generation of, of, of Sloan and it has staying power. Definitely. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny because that's the song that brought me to the dance and that's, you know, it's been enduring. Like I still like it. Like I'm not sick of it. I'm not over it. Uh, I still appreciate it when I, when I hear it. And uh, it's, it's funny the phases of Sloan fandom. Like there are people that, the other man was their introduction. And that was a song where right. we kind of tittered and gossiped and giggled about yeah. it, you know, and that there are people who like not Navy blues, not one chord, you know, like that was it. Or, you know, things from action packed. It's, I guess it's a function of age, right? Like, uh, you can do that with any band, you know, there are people that, uh, you know, have a phase of ACDC that they discovered or a phase of Iron Maiden or a phase of Kanye West or or phase of, I don't know, PJ Harvey. One of, one of the great things about the band is the depth of the catalog and the fact that they're still out there. You know, it's 2020. They're still out there. They're recording a new album as we speak. It's going to be great because every other of the 12 studio LPs that they've released has been fantastic. And, you know, not too many other bands can really claim uh, that they're still doing this in 2020 with the same type of intent and drive that they were in 1992. So, and I just want to put it out. I want to put it out there too that I'm a Last Action Hero soundtrack ACDC fan. So, I just want to make that clear. <laughs> uh, one of my early ACDC things I had was the Who Made Who cassette. Uh, oh, such a good uh, album, which is kind of a best of album, but it just sounds so great. Yeah, I'm probably more of a Bon Scott person when it comes down to it uh yeah. than anything else uh but yeah who made who <laughs> it's a good one and i think on there was a much east episode where uh <clears throat> i think uh chris and patrick and their moms were on there or something and they made the joke about i think how chris's mom was like a bon scott era fan or something like that i don't know uh <laughs> all of the uh <laughs> nothing but slow memories and anecdotes but uh yeah man i i can't i can't thank you again so much and appreciate this it is it is so cool I, you know i mean i've spoken to you when derek and i and you have hung out and I, like i said i saw you at that baseball game and stuff but truly growing up you know seeing your name in the magazine uh, it's it's neat to actually kind of talk to you and talk about all this stuff and because it was such a important part of my you know musical youth and growing up and stuff so um it sounds cheesy to say you know but thank you this sounds totally cheesy but thank you so much for all those years of awesome content i remember taking the magazine into like to get my hair cut and being like like that guy on the cover you know like it was so important to me in my life and stuff so um yeah it's an honor to know you and a pleasure to speak with you today thank you Uh, i'm glad to hear that you know people cared you know, like that you that you cared because that was the whole point. You know, like the yeah. the whole the whole reason. I mean, when I go get my hair cut, I go with photos of uh, you know uh, Charlie Watts and Brian Ferry <laughs> on, on my phone. So I get it totally. It's uh, you know you can't explain it to someone who isn't a music person, but a music person, it's like, yeah, okay, you want this person's hair? You know, like yeah exactly that <laughs> and i think the haircut i was looking for was maybe 2000 era i'm of the earth bass player um as i recall <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> oh, bruce, uh, bruce gordon tips. that's right yeah he yeah. had some cool hair he he was kind of he uh, it was somewhere somewhere in between that and like between the bridges era patrick pentland um, uh here, here's here's some bonus content for you uh <laughs> 
Bruce happens to be my favorite member of I Mother Earth, but the reason why my hockey team uh, got into this whole the whole uh, uh, exclaim cup, you know, hockey summit of the arts, you know, uh, uh, good time hockey league of the arts, that whole universe is because the the, the organizers knew I played hockey and and you know, kind of didn't suck, but what happened is. I Mother Earth one year at the tournament had a team and Sonic Onion Records had a team and I believe they got into a brawl. So both nice. of them got kicked out. And so they had opening an opening. So they're like, hey, do you do you know does Chart want to make a team? I'm like, well, but we got like five writers that can probably, you know that could probably play i know a bunch of players so i could like grab a few players from my team and then we know a few musicians so we'll do some outreach there so the team was initially one third chart staff one third um just friends of mine who are art friendly and one third like musicians and music industry people but the reason why we got asked was because they needed to find a spot or they needed to fill spots <laughs> because they had kicked out these two teams from fighting last year or for from fighting the year before. And one of them was the I Mother Earth team. Just like I Mother Earth was kicked out of the Canadian music scene altogether in the 2000s, right? That's <laughs> Edwin kicked the other three guys out of his life. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's amazing, man. That's, that's hilarious. All right, Aaron Browfee uh, has been our guest today. Thank you again, Aaron. It's always a pleasure. Uh, don't forget, listener, to check out, the, of course, the Murder Records podcast. There is a new episode out now, episode three, uh, where they go over what uh, Ken was speaking about earlier, the new B-Sides win uh, 12-inch that just came out. Uh, awesome versions of some early uh, B-Sides and, and so on. Uh, that underwhelmed, that early underwhelmed version with the uh, with uh, Chris's erased guitar back in there. I love right. it. It sounds so good. I love the shaker right up front in the mix, too. It makes such a yeah. huge difference. Uh, it, it weirdly sounds kind of more in tune with what was to come on like twice removed and one chord that the song mm. kind of sounds interestingly more timeless I find that's um, right but anyway, yeah, check out that Murder Records podcast. It's amazing. Uh, Sloan will forever be at the top of our top 50 albums of all time. Forget the whole Canadian <laughs> content side of it. I mean, top albums of all time, top band of all time. And that's why we have this podcast. And we thank you for listening. And uh, we will talk to you next time. Take care, guys. Don't forget to like and subscribe and review and rate our podcast so we can continue to churn out content like this. 